Hey, we have a guest speaker joining us this morning. Aaron, why don't you come up here? Um, this is the wonderful Aaron, and I've asked him to introduce himself because I'm sure he has lots to tell you about uh, everything that he gets up to. Uh, but I just want to let you know, in case you don't know, uh, that the Message Trust, who Aaron uh, works for and helps to head up in London, um, they hang out in our offices with us. Uh, so we get to join in with ministry together, and we love doing that. So Aaron, I'm going to pray for you, and then I'll leave you to introduce yourself. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the privilege that it is to, uh, to know you. And I thank you for Aaron this morning. I thank you for the word that he's prepared for us. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would pour yourself out on him. And would you give each of us hearts to hear what it is that you have for us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't we welcome Aaron? Amen. Morning. Thanks for that, guys. Feel very welcomed. Apart from, uh, I, was, I didn't get here at 10 this morning, so I also... Um, felt the wrath of Philippa then, uh, for a moment. Yeah, I, I did, don't worry. Um, yeah, as Philippa said, my name's Aaron. Uh, I work for a charity called The Message Trust. Anyone ever heard of The Message Trust before? A few fans, it's cool. It's actually the Worldwide Message Tribe. Is that anyone remember that jump in the house of God? Yeah, I'm too young to know what that is, so there we go. Um, so yeah, but The Message is uh, 30 years old as an organization. It started in Manchester uh, with two crazy, raving uh, northerners, uh, two brothers uh, called the Hawthorne brothers, one of them being Andy. And they had this dream. Basically, they wanted to reach uh, inner city uh, young people. And they decided, they said, we're going to put on Manchester's largest ever youth uh, concert basically and we're going to put on these Christian artists and we're going to have a good time and we're going to share the gospel and loads of young people are going to come to know Jesus and so Andy and his brother wrote a letter to every church in Manchester and said we are booking out in faith the largest arena um, in Manchester I think it was the Manchester Apollo at the time is what they booked out um, and ended up booking it out for a week um, and they packed every night out with young people and hundreds of young people came to know Jesus. But it caused a real issue because all these, what Andy calls scallies, um, which I think is probably not a, not a nice term, um, turned up at churches the next Sunday and wrecked the place, totally trashed it. And the churches didn't know what to do. They were so excited that all these young people were in their church. They were either bending over backwards to do everything to keep them or these young people were driving out everyone else in their church and they were like, we're going to have no one left if this continues. And so um, seeing, uh, seeing this sort of like uh, pattern emerge, uh, they launched something called Eden. And off the back of that, the message trust, or it was initially called the, the message to schools, um, but the message trust was born. And so what they would do is they'd have these bands who would uh, creatively go into schools, share, uh, play, uh, use music to communicate the gospel in language that young people could understand, uh, and then invite them to gigs and preach the gospel. But also, they started to move people into um, a community in Withenshaw, which at the time was the largest <coughs> estate in Europe. Uh, and they moved into the neighborhood, uh, and they loved these young people in proximity. Uh, and that sort of birthed the, the move of the message. We're now uh, in about eight nations across the earth. We have a resource called Advances Youth that's currently used in about 67 nations uh, on earth. Um, loads of hubs around the UK. That's what I get the privilege of doing. I lead the London Hub, the greatest 
city on earth is London, my home, I love this city to pieces. I'm a North Londoner though, so please forgive me, um, but I feel at home at East London because this is the birthplace of like all good mission uh, happens in East London. If you don't know, Salvation Army was birthed in this borough, I believe, in Tower Hamlets, um, and so yeah, uh, we're, in, we're, we're on good soil. What do the message do? We do four main things really. The first is community, uh, creative, um, creative mission. Hopefully some slides will come up. There we go. And so Andy is no longer running around um, playing music in schools. Thank the Lord. Uh, we've, we've got other people doing that now. And so we still go into schools, uh, still put on gigs uh, where we uh, share the gospel in a relevant way to young people. We've actually got one coming to Tower Hamlets uh, in uh, April, which we're really excited about. Um, so we still do that creative mission. Second one is uh, community transformation. This is uh, twofold. We still do something called Eden, where we move people into deprived neighborhoods. Um, we raise up local indigenous leaders to run alongside church as the missionaries. Rather than loving the poor from a distance, um, we love them in proximity. Uh, it's very hard to do mission to the poor when you turn up, you do your thing, and then you leave. Actually, what does it look like to move into the neighborhood? We believe Jesus was downwardly mobile. That's what I read about anyone who talks about Jesus left his throne and he came to be with us, born in a manger, in a stable, not in a palace. So we uh, still do this thing called Eden in London now. We've, um, there's been 12 Eden teams established. Um, and also, I think we've moved just over 80 people and then relocated their lives from somewhere else being downed in mobile into uh, urban areas or areas of high deprivation. And the second thing we do in communication is a thing called Community Groceries, which we launched in the pandemic. Um, right in the teeth of the pandemic, we're like, what, what do we do? How do we, you know, where's the need? And we saw the food insecurity and said, why don't we set up a community grocery where people, can, members can come, do a four pound shop, but for that four pounds, get about 35 pounds worth of food. But obviously alongside that, if you come into a, a, a grocery, you're going to get prayed for, you're going to hear the gospel. And it basically exploded. We've got 22 of them now across the nation with the second largest um, food insecurity like charity, uh, second to the Trust All Trust. Happened all in like three years. And what's been amazing is we've just seen ch like churches having to put on extra services because... Their congregation is now like 70% completely unchurched. Uh, one church in particular had to do a baptism every week just to keep up with the backlog for a year because of the people who are pouring into the kingdom, which is just amazing. And we've got one in Ilford, we've got one in uh, coming in West London as well, which we're excited about. Uh, so third thing we do, uh, I can't remember which one's next, community transformation. Let's have a look. Da, 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 da. Hey, Christ Centered Enterprise, that's the one. Um, we have a coffee shop in Covent Garden. We employ those who are those who are prison leavers. Um, uh, we employ them uh, in a in a coffee shop in Covent Garden called Neil Street Espresso. You're all welcome. If you come and you see me there, I will buy you a coffee. Please don't all come at once. <laughs> that would be a disaster, uh, and our baristas will be very overwhelmed. Um, but basically, uh, those we work with in prison, who we want to uh, give them uh, an opportunity. That the rate of people who come to faith in prison and then when they leave prison and turn away from faith is 80%. 80% of people who make a commitment in prison and leave prison um, drop off. And we don't think that's okay. Uh, we want to do something about that. And so and a lot of that reason is employment and st stability and security. And so we uh, employ them in our coffee shop and provide a whole heap of wraparound care for these guys. A two-year program, a holistic program that sort of uh, based off Maslow's hierarchy of needs. 
uh, and um, yeah, it's an amazing journey and with these guys. It's a, it's, a, it's a deep work, if you like. It's a narrow but deep work, what we're doing with these guys. And just honestly, from the most chaotic of lives, most chaotic, broken of backgrounds, God just, you, when he just moves on people like that and just begins to redeem and rescue them, it's like all the more glorious what God does. So I encourage you, come to Neil Street in Covent Garden, Neil Street Espresso, come and chat to one of our team members, and I promise you, you'll be blessed. Uh, and, um, and then we also do prisons work as well in Brixton and, oh I shouldn't say the prisons we're in, ignore that. Uh, we're not in that one. I always forget to do that. My prisons team are going to kill me. Um, we're in two prisons in London. One of them might be Brixton. The other one I won't tell you about. Um, and we probably engage about 40 offenders uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, just engaging them um, with faith. And then the last thing that we do, uh, training and equipping, which is where I got involved with the message. Um, we create some resources, a resource called Advance, which helps the church mobilize the gift of the evangelist, um, and also something called Advance Youth, um, which is how I got involved, um, which is training young people how to share the gospel, giving them a language to share the gospel, teaching them that back foot Christianity is boring, and when you get on the front foot, it gets very exciting. You weren't made to hide away, you were made to shine bright, you were made to proclaim the gospel. That's when I think this walk with Jesus starts to make some sense. Uh, and so, yeah, that's sort of what the message do. If you want to find out any more, please come chat to myself, or Anna's on the front row, give us a wave, Anna. She's my operations manager, she holds everything together. If you've got a question, Anna knows the answer. I don't, I'm just the face. Um, and I do the talking. Um, but yeah, I would encourage you, come um, come chat with us. Um, two, a few ways you could support us. Please pray for us. Um, everything that we do needs to be laced with prayer. If, if you know, Prayer puts the power where it belongs. We can preach the gospel, but I think if prayer is not running alongside it, you don't get salvation. And so prayer puts power where it belongs. So please stand with us, pray with us. Um, if you want to come and volunteer, if you've got some time um, that you'd like to, to, to sort of give up, Come let us know. We would love to be able to work out how we could use your gifts, your skill set best. And then, of course, if you'd like to financially stand with us, um, we would massively appreciate that. It goes, to, it goes um, to some amazing work. I see it firsthand, time in, time out. Uh, if you decide to do that, we've got one of these for you today. Look at this. Ooh, a tote bag. No, it's more than a tote bag. Inside, I won't open it up, but inside the tote bag is a load of resources. Uh, Andy Hawthorne's latest book, A Burning Heart, hardback edition. That just means they couldn't sell enough. Um, but hardback edition, um, a beautiful uh, Eden book called Unfinished, which is like some beautiful stories about Eden. Uh, it's got one of our band's CDs in it. It's got a, a memory stick with uh, like a thousand talks from the Message Trust from some of the speakers who've been through, and we've had some like, world-class speakers come through the message. So if you choose to stand with us today, I will give you one of those. Okay, that's enough about the message. Um, Pippa, Philippa, Pippa, Philippa was, man, I'm late, I'm getting the name wrong, it's a disaster, uh, was telling me about you guys are in a series called Rhythms, is that correct? Amazing. And just discovering the rhythms, if you like, the patterns of what it is, spiritual disciplines almost, uh, to help form us and shape us more into the image of Jesus. And I love this idea. And, and uh, Philip asked me to come and just preach on the rhythm of mission and evangelism, which is super exciting. But I want to tell you a story before I begin, uh, and it involves the humble banana. Uh, I love bananas. Um, seriously, foam bananas. Yes, best sweet ever. Banana bread. Anyone? Wow, banana bread foam? Yeah. 
Banana bread went wild in COVID. I don't know what happened, but it was like banana bread every day uh, during COVID. Bananas in pajamas, love that. Banana milkshake, yeah, I'm about the banana, okay? But me and the banana had a fallout when I was about 13 years old, and I will tell you why we had a fallout. Uh, I'm a church kid. I was like practically raised by church. Um, and uh, I was, you know, because of that, I was a good church boy. I wanted to do good church boy things. And uh, we were doing this mission in Enfield, where I live, as churches together. And so they decided that we were going to go out and we were going to try and share the gospel. But I was about 13 years old, didn't really have a language for the gospel yet. I mean, I knew, I knew Jesus and I believe, like, you know, I love him, but I didn't really have a language for it yet to tell somebody else. And so I'm sort of like awkwardly being a 13-year-old trying to talk to people, but it's not going anywhere. And then someone says to me, if you want, Aaron, go rummage through this box and there's a box of tracks and pick one up, learn one off by heart. And then you can just share that. It's like, fantastic. Easy. Done. Got a good memory. That'll be fine. And so I go through the box, rummage through, and I'm looking through this one that's all about the intelligent design argument, which is basically the world is so finely tuned, there must be a creator. So I'm looking through all these things about nature and blah, blah, and I stumble upon this page about the banana. And I start reading it, and I get a bit blown away. I'm like, this is incredible. Did you know that the banana tells you when it's ready to eat? Brown is too soft, green is too hard, yellow is just right. Do you know a banana has a waxy skin on the outside so it doesn't get ruined by the elements and when you hold it, it doesn't slip out of your hand? Did you know that a banana has six ridges on it and when you actually close your hand, your hand has six little ridges on it, all different sized, just perfect to fit a banana in. And I, I kid you not, I'm reading this and I am there like, jaw is hitting the floor and I'm like this is unbelievable god you're awesome so I'm like I'm gonna go with this in my 13 year old brain please bear that in mind and uh, I'm looking around I'm scouting around and I'm like okay picking my victims and I'm like who would I go like, share with and as I'm looking around I see these two girls and I love to say it was the Holy Spirit, definitely wasn't, um, definitely almost maybe and I see these two girls and I'm like oh I'm gonna go talk to them they need to hear about Jesus. And so uh, I go over and uh, I'm like, hi, this is my opening line, I kid you not. Hi, have you ever seen a banana before? <laughs> and uh, their reaction was much like your reaction. A little bit taken back, started to giggle. And I'm like, I will not be, you know, even though I face persecution, I will still go on. <laughs> they will hear the gospel. So I launch into it, I said, did you know? A banana tells you when it's ready to eat. Brown is too soft, green is too hard, yellow is just right. There's a waxy skin on the outside so that it doesn't get ruined by the elements. When you're holding it in your hand, it doesn't slip out of your hand. Did you know the banana has six ridges on it? And when you close your hand, you have six ridges on your hand. It perfectly fits in the human hand. And I go on and on. Five minutes I'm probably talking on my sermon on the banana. And these girls are increasing. You know when you start laughing you can't breathe anymore? That's what's happening. And I'm so locked in. I'm so laser focused. I'm just not seeing, I'm not reading the situation at all. And I come to the crescendo of my sermon on the banana. And I'm like, and so, because of the banana, there must be a God. That's <laughs> <laughs> all true. There must be a God. Would you like to give your life to Jesus today? <laughs> and in that moment, you laugh, the heavens were rendered. Oh, no, no uh, they just continued to laugh at me. And my 13-year-old self came to my senses and I was like, this is the most embarrassing thing I have ever done. I am never doing this again. 
And I made a vow to God that day, I'm never doing evangelism again. Perhaps when I use that word, evangelism, like those, that, that we sort of get a bit awkward, right? I call this the evangelism, uh, evangelism nausea. It's sometimes like what we get, okay? Perhaps the image that we conjure up in our mind is the shouty Christian on a busy Oxford street with the message, turn or burn, like going on. That just makes us want to shrivel up and die. <laughs> or, and I want to recognize from the outset that evangelism or sharing our faith with others is an emotionally loaded idea that can cause nerves or nausea. You know, on one hand, we have grown up in a secular culture where postmodern moral relativism rules the day. The gospel of you do you, bro. Your truth. Live your truth. I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. It's not for me to say, who am I to judge? That's become the predominant ideology of the day. And it can feel on an emotional level... Not on a rational level, on an emotional level. I think it can feel at times when we go to preach the gospel a little bit like immoral, dare I say it. That it flies in the face of what culture tells us is the highest morality is to be tolerant. And in an age of tolerance, to preach a gospel that says you've got to repent and believe the good news. The gospel that calls you a sinner. A gospel that says you are broken on the inside. There is a fundamental flaw with the human heart that needs a saviour. That needs correcting. That needs someone to step in and rescue you. That your inward, your inward desires aren't always correct. To preach the gospel in a culture that flies in the face that can feel at times a little bit like, am I an immoral person? It can be tricky. At the same time, we've grown up in a great global reckoning over racial injustice. That the idea of the evangelical Christian, despite its great emphasis on sharing the gospel and the missionary movement of the 18th and 19th centuries, it's become synonymous with colonialism. The white man's religion, the white saviour complex that can be a little bit tricky, that has no place, rightly so, in our society today. On top of all of this, the idea of the gospel that, that it's a ticket into heaven sort of gospel or the sort of if you die today, do you know where you're going to spend eternity or the rise of mega churches and televang televangelists sort of a, a self-help gospel or a health and wealth gospel. In the mix of all of those things, in some way, our feelings of evangelism I kind of feel like I, have a, I feel like I have a right to be a bit nauseous about it. And yet, in all four gospel, all four gospel writers tell us, they command us, they call us, they implore us to go and preach the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. All four Gospels say this. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the, of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mark 16, 15. He said to them, go into all the world, preach the Gospel to all creation. Luke tells us, 
Uh, in the next slide, Luke tells us, um, in Luke, uh, oh, Acts 1, sorry, in Acts 1, same author, uh, he says, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Yes, Tower Hamlets is in the ends of the earth. John 20, 21, again, Jesus said, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. All four gospel writers tell us, implore us, and call us, you must preach the gospel. So I'm sorry. If you feel a bit nauseous about it, it is a call upon our lives to do so. Jesus says himself, I have come to seek and save the lost. So the question begs, how is Jesus doing that today? Well, he does it through you and me. That's how Jesus seeks and saves the lost today. He does it through you and me by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that is to pull us consistently, our hearts. The Holy Spirit wants to reorientate our hearts toward the world. Augustine calls, uh, calls sin, Cormac doesn't say, in other words, the heart turned in on itself. So if the Holy Spirit is to regenerate us, it is to reorientate the human heart toward the other. Or as it's famous, he said, the gospel comes to us on the way to somebody else. And after all, good news should be shared. It just should be. If it's good news, you want to share it. And it is good news that you and I, totally lost, in rebellion, running the other way, thank God that he's quicker than you and me, that he outpaced us as he chased us and pursued us down in the face of rebellion, in the face of us pushing him away. And what I couldn't do for myself, the person that Jesus has done for me. And he has given me his righteousness, his right standing with God when I did not deserve it, not an ounce of it did I deserve. And yet he calls me his son. Yet he calls me his child, yet he calls you his daughter, and he has a place for you. He is preparing a place for you in eternity with him. That's good news. There's another kingdom. Jesus says, I must preach the good news. No, I don't think he says it as like a duty, like, I must preach the good news. I think it's like a burning desire. I must. I, you, you can't keep me here because I've got to tell others about the kingdom of God. Mortimeriah says this, every generation has to be evangelized. That is, confronted with the good news of the kingdom of, Je the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And every generation of Christians has the unique and non-transferable responsibility of sharing the good news with its own generation. The the untransfer, the non-transferable responsibility to share the good news with the world around us. And there is a window. I really believe this. We are living in an exciting moment because the secular gospels of, I don't know, um, the secular gospels, are, they're fractured and they're failing society. The bankruptcy of secularism and and, and pursuit of pleasures and money and wealth or careerism or, or, or sexual identity, whatever the gospel is that the world is preaching us, it is failing people miserably. It is, it is totally unable. It does not have the resources to meet our, um, our spiritual needs, our communal needs. And people are open to another narrative and a better story. I truly believe that in my whole heart. The stage is set. And let me tell you, 
the age of the stage evangelist also I think is just we're done with. The idea of like the big stadium tour, let the American evangelist roll into town and we'll all just fill the stadium and hopefully they'll get someone saved. I just don't think that's where we're at anymore. It's the mobilization of the everyday ordinary believer who sits in a chair or a pew on a Sunday morning and then on Monday morning is at work nine to five. That's where I believe it is at. I want to read this passage, Acts 17. Fascinating passage, Acts 17 here. Um, it's Paul as he's talking to uh, the Greeks and he's talking about the unknown God. But I just want to hone in on, on, a, on a bit that he says here. Acts 17, from one man he made all the nations, talking about God, all the nations, they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and their boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. What this scripture is telling me is that, it, that actually you are, whether you feel like it or not, the right person at the right time in the right place. Read it. From one man he made all people, every one of us, the right person. And he has set, he has dictated at what time in history you should live the right time. And he has drawn out the boundaries of their lands, the right place. You are the right person in, at the right time in the right place, whether you think it or not. And some of us sort of think it's a coincidence. Some of us sort of think it's an accident. It just so happens that I, I am where I am. That's not what scripture tells us. The Bible tells us you've been placed in a specific point in time and history for a reason and for a purpose. It doesn't just so happen. And I'll prove it to you. The story of Ruth. This is, this is I think, one of the most understated past, like, little phrases in scripture. Ruth 2, 3, for those who don't know the story, um, Ruth, uh, Ruth's mother-in-law was a woman called Naomi, um, who leaves her land because it's in famine, marries, uh, marries someone, they have two boys, and they live in, in, uh, in Moab, and the, her husband dies and her two sons die, and so all she's left with is her and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And Orpah, Ruth, Naomi says, I'm going back home, I've got nothing here, I'm in a foreign land, I'm going back home, but you both stay. Orpah says, I'll stay, but, but Ruth says, no, I will go with you. And so Ruth sticks with Naomi, and they arrive back in Bethlehem, which is a precarious place to be for two women who didn't have a husband or a male in their family to look after them. There was no one to provide and no one to protect, and so they had to live off the, 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 the sort of generosity of the community. So we get the term people in the margins. Because you're only allowed to farm right up until the margins. And then the widows and the foreigners and the orphans were allowed to take the margins of the harvest field. So we get the term people in the margins. But it says this, okay, and so it talks about Ruth going out into the field. It says, and so she went out into the field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Really subtle, really subtle. But it's a little phrase here, as it turns out. Because as it turns out, Ruth and Boaz would have, a, would have a son. And that son would have a child called Jesse. And Jesse would have a, have a child called David. That's King David. 
And Jesus Christ would come through the line of David. Through the line of Ruth and Boaz. And you're telling me that the salvation plan of God hung on an it just so happened moment? I just don't think God's that careless. I don't think that's how it happened. I think Ruth was the right person in the right place at the right time. And she might not have felt like it, but she was. Do you think in that moment as she's gleaning the field, as her husband's died and her mother-in-law's um, uh, uh, partner has died, do you think she's like, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm feeling great about myself right now, totally right place, right, right time, right person. She's feeling none of that. Yet she is. And what I want my encouragement to you is this, that you are, this is the sort of phrase that I would say is you are a custodian of an unusual set of divine circumstances. You are a custodian of a, a, of a unique set of divine circumstances. In other words, it is crazy that you, it's mad that God has put you in the place that you are, positioned perfectly for a reason and for a purpose. What is that purpose? Let me go back to that Acts 17 verse. It says that he has done all of this so that he may not be far from anyone. That they might reach out and find him though he is not far from any one of us. In other words, God, <clears throat> I used to think, think, my friends, some of them, like, they're very far away from you, Lord. They don't feel very close to you. And I remember God saying to me, yeah, but I put you next to them. Another, another passage would say, and if he is making his appeal through us we've become ambassadors. In other words, some of us need to draw a big circle around the circumstances in our life, whether you're liking them or not, whether you think you're the right person in the right place at the right time or not. You need to begin to draw a circle around the environment you're in and say, God has placed me here that I may be close to those who do not know him because his desire is to get out of me, to reorientate my heart, that I may win them into the kingdom. And, I, and until you take responsibility for the unique set of divine circumstances that you find yourself in, some of those people may not be reached. Part of my job is I tell 13-year-olds now, do not throw away your life. I made a vow to God, I'll never do evangelism. I live my life like that for like the next eight, nine years. I miss the most fruitful time of my life, the mission at, at university. I just got myself in a Christian bubble. And now I, just, I implore 13 years, don't do what I did. Don't do what I did because actually some of those people, I don't know if they're going to engage with Christians again. I don't know if they're going to live with a Christian again. I don't want to miss it. <clears throat> and so let me get real practical just to land. How do we do this? What does it look like for you to draw a circle around the unique set of divine circumstances and begin to say, I'm going to reach some people? Well, I want to, t I want to tell you about a method that Jesus used. There's two stories. Uh, I, won't go, I won't read them, but I'll, tell, I'll summarize them for you. It's Luke 19 <coughs> and Luke 7. In Luke 19, uh, it's the story of Zacchaeus. And Jesus is walking through a crowd. And we know, you might know the story. Zacchaeus is so short, he climbs a tree just to see Jesus. And Jesus spots Zacchaeus. And he says to him, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house to have dinner. And everyone starts murmuring. 
Jesus eats with sinners. Jesus begins to get a reputation as he sits at a table with Zacchaeus, a tax collector, who was at the time morally the most, like, the most bankrupt people that could be. Tax collectors in the time, were they were Jews. They weren't Romans, they were Jews. And as, as the Jewish nation were under Roman occupation, it was like a traitor that, 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 that um, Zacchaeus would go around collecting the Roman tax from his fellow friends, from his neighbours, from his community, and was probably taking a little slice on top of that as well for himself. Couldn't have got lower. And then again in, in Luke 7, you have to turn, you know, just turn a little bit and you'll find the story of when Jesus is at the table and a, what is described as a sex worker comes into the room and begins to wipe uh, Jesus' feet with her tears and again the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are like this is outrageous how dare this happen Jesus sits with sinners in fact he gets a reputation they call him a, a, a glutton and a drunkard that's what they say about Jesus that he is a friend of sinners and he is one of those but not all three I'll leave you to guess which one he is hopefully you get it right there are two things that make this moment radical the first is that who he's eating with the lowest in society the second is how meals were seen in the culture to have a meal was like a it was like a, a status game you would have meals with people, what they would actually call table fellowship. To share the table with someone was, not, was no small deal. You would only share with those of your class or if you were trying to sort of climb the ladder a little bit. And at times you saw how we do dinner now. We have our friends over for dinner and we have our family over for dinner because we have to. But we, have our, we enjoy when we're having our friends over, right? And it's like... And you, know, and you want to go to the coolest dinner party. You want to go to like the, the you know, I want to go to their house. I've heard their house is really nice. I've heard they do the best food or you know, whatever it is. And, and that's the sort of sense that we have. But here is Jesus sitting at the table with people who were despised, the lowest of the low. Who is that in society today in your eyes? I wonder. Don't tell me out loud. Keep it in your head. Between you and the Lord. What are they like for you? Imagine them at your table. Imagine you at their table. Jesus didn't just have those who thought like him, his close circle. It was the marginalized, the stranger, the forgotten and the despised. But he used it not as a way to be upwardly mobile, but to be downwardly mobile, to draw close. As uh, Shane Claiborne says, let us be careful that as we ascend the ladder of upward mobility, we do not pass Jesus on his way down. For Jesus, meals weren't just society, societal boundary, a boundary marker, but a way to extend God's greater welcome into the kingdom. Jesus had a reputation for this. In the Gospel of Luke, food is mentioned 50 times. Praise the Lord. If Jesus was not at a meal, he was going to a meal, coming back from one. Jesus didn't announce, just announce a great feast. He actually feasted with people all the time. The table in the church, in the early church, was the centerpiece of the service. And then we made it into a mass. And we formalized it. 
and it became a somber event. But it wasn't like that at the beginning. It was chaos. It was a family affair. It was get around the table, do life with one another, invite a stranger into your home, practice hospitality. Do you know a condition to be an elder was that you regularly practiced hospitality? Loads of church leaders will get kicked out for sexual immorality. I've never seen a church leader kicked out for not hosting enough people in the house. Sorry, Philip, I think you have to host some more people, I think. <laughs> Eating a meal with Jesus and those that he wants to reach is not a sign of the kingdom. It is the kingdom of God at hand. Luke uses this phrase twice, the Son of Man came. He uses that twice, one in Luke 19 and one in Luke 7. The first is, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And the second is the Son of Man came eating and drinking. One was the mission and one was the method. How did he seek and save the lost? He came eating and drinking. He came eating and drinking. And I don't know about you, but I can definitely do that. <laughs> Sounds a bit easier than a call to stand on a street corner and shout at people, turn or burn. But to humbly invite your neighbours to your house. Say, do you want to come out for a meal? You know what happens at a table? You know what happens? You tell stories. That's what you do. You tell stories. Institute, this, this idea was instituted by God at the Passover. When he instituted this word bayet is used. And the idea is that you were your family around the table. That's the image. <clears throat> bayet, this idea of a household getting around a table and telling the story of the Passover. What do you do when you have friends around you tell you stories? Oh, how did you guys meet? Oh, let me tell you, I love stories. It's amazing. How did, you, how did you come to move here? How did you live? All those things. We tell the stories. And the greatest story is the story that you were once dead and now be made alive. Yeah. And so when someone says, oh, what's your story? Oh, I've got a story. It's the greatest story ever told. And you can tell them what Jesus means to you. They can't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> They're literally obliged to stay. It's rude to leave. Okay? Unless they make the emergency phone call. Oh, I've got to go, sorry. <laughs> but it's a simple, it's a simple invite. And you begin to tell the story of what God has done in your life, what God is doing in your life, the things that you dream for God to do in your life. And all of a sudden, the gospel doesn't become some event to somebody that was 2,000 years ago. It is alive and active in the person sitting in front of them. That's powerful. It's almost undeniable. You know why Alpha, I think, is so good? Because you sit at a table and you eat. There's a commonality about a table. You know that? There's a beautiful image, I think, was a table. There's a story in, um, I think it's Two Kings, where David invites one of Jonathan's um, sons, who he should have really got rid of because he was a threat to the kingdom. But he was, uh, he was actually a cripple. And David invites him to come sit at the king's table. What I love about that idea is, at a table, his crippleness was completely hidden. He was an equal at the table. Even though in society, he was totally an outcast. It's 
what the table does. It's the great leveller. So I call it a communion, the communion table. It's a common union. It's the great leveller of all people. And in those places when I think mountains are brought low and valleys are filled in and we're all equal, the only one left to be exalted is Jesus. That's why I love the picture of the table. The most underused weapon in any Christian's arsenal is their dining room table. And I'm, conv I'm convinced, I'm convinced that if we got back to that, I think we'd see the church grow quite rapidly. I think hospitality is a, is a key. And so that's a practice for you. I know sharing the gospel can be difficult. I know it can be a bit tricky. But three times a day you sit at a table. Maybe not always. I, I skip breakfast. I know it doesn't look like it. <laughs> but you sit at a table and you have a meal. Just asking you to just make some space for two more people. Can we pray? Yeah. Amazing. I'm going to invite the band back up just as I pray. Yeah, Lord, the truth is we can struggle so much with the idea of having to, that, those awkward moments of like, you know, we've all been there where we're trying to preach the gospel to someone or share our, share, our, share the story of Jesus. And it can be tricky and it can be hard. But, but Lord, we've got to wrestle with it because you've called us to it. And I want to be a faithful disciple. I don't want to just do the inward things, the Sabbath and the solitude and, the, and reading the scriptures and spending time in worship and doing all those disciplines that are good for me. But what about the world around me? Jesus, you practiced hospitality all the time. You didn't even have a house. We're so blessed. Those of us that have a table to sit around. Lord, teach us to open our homes to our neighbours and our work colleagues with a simple invite. Hey, would you want to come round for a meal? We'd love to bless you and cook up a storm. And I pray, Lord, off the back of this, that all over Tower Hamlets and Mill Pockets, that these who are sat in these chairs would engage over this next season in conversation after conversation with their neighbours, with their work colleagues, with their families, with their friends, and begin to tell the beautiful story of the gospel that has so changed their life. And Lord, I pray as they do, as they share their testimony, would you do it again in the person that they're telling would you repeat it? I pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.